Hi, Maria. Hi, how are you, Carolyn? I'm doing well. How about you? Hi. Hi, Ricardo. Hi, everybody. Where's Linda? She's always there. I know. She's she'll probably be here soon. Charlie, hi. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good How morning. <clears throat> Holy has certainly been enjoying that Thinking Orthodox book that you'll be teaching. Isn't it great? I love I it. Haven't, I haven't started it yet. I He started it and he keeps telling me, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. So I I need to get into it. Um, but um, yeah. once you do, you won't want to put it down. It's uh, she's very easy to read. And uh, yeah, you got it, Ricardo. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what he was saying. So um I guess with uh, Deacon David doing it on Wednesday nights and you doing it on Sundays, are you guys kind of coordinating or just going to kind of go with it however the Lord leads you? Uh, yeah, well, I think we're both going to be uh, teaching it probably in a little different um, emphasis or format. There will be some uh, overlap, mm -hmm. but uh, I think if either Wednesday night or Sunday morning, we'll probably end up covering almost all the same things. Wonderful. And you'll be taping on Sunday too, right? That's right. Okay, good. Yeah. God willing and the technology works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, goodness. If you also go on YouTube too and check out her videos, um, she's had several speaking, um, speaking engagements about the subject. Mm. Each one is different. So it's like you learn something new from each one. And I've learned a lot from those. That's how I started. And then I started reading the book. And it all kind of just really ties into together nicely. Wow. Thanks for mentioning that. Who's the author? Who is the author? Uh, Jeannie, uh, Dr. Jeannie Constantino. <clears throat> it's from um, Ancient Faith Press. And... Um, yeah, do we have any in the bookstore, Carolyn? Yes, I think they have uh, four, three or four for sale. We bought one of them. I think they have one in the window. So I think they're going to go fast once word gets out about how good of a book it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There should almost be several copies in the library, too. I mean, just for people coming in mm -hmm. to take a look at it. Because it's like one of the requirements to the catechumen class as well. So it's kind of like, we should probably have a few in there. Yeah, good idea. Where is everybody? Well, um, I think Father is with the clergy for a breakfast that started at 8.30. And so I'm wondering if maybe that's why they're, he's not here quite yet. But um, I know that was something going on this morning, first thing. So Carolyn, how is your sweetheart? <laughs> He's doing very well, thanks. Um, we've been trying to... Uh, Get a little more exercise in so we're trying to get 10,000 steps a day and um 
he's doing a little better than I am because when he comes to church to do the candles and get everything oh, yeah. ready for services, <laughs> he gets over 5,000 steps yeah. doing that. It's amazing. But, um, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're doing well. Thank God. It's, uh, it's something that we need to continue with his uh, heart. We, it's something that we need to do regularly all the time, you know, so, and it doesn't hurt me either. I'm really, I'm enjoying it. So it gives us a time to just walk and pray together and talk and share different things. And it's, it's been a really good highlight for us each day. I can't believe summer is over. I know, I know. Blink and it's over. Yeah. You've done some traveling here, haven't you? Didn't you recently go? Yeah, we've done a lot this summer. Mm -hmm. Came back recently from Scotland. Oh, wow. <laughs> now you know where he's at. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we'd have a guest lecturer today. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? She's got a uh, pre-planned uh, pre appointment right now. That's the original reason for his, uh, his visit. Ah. Who knows? He might just wander in. <laughs> all right, let's all pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things that will pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, and all holy good and life-giving spirit, now and ever, ages of ages. Amen. Amen. So I walked in on the conversation you're all having, and yes, we have not progressed without you all. <laughs> That's good. We were waiting for you. So I, I just want to make a quick comment, then we're going to jump back into Matthew. And yes, we're in Matthew. We're not even quite halfway there. Um, and the comment I want to make is not on the, the scriptures we're going to read, but it's on the prayer that we read when we, um, it really comes from the liturgy before we hear the gospel. Um, and that's the prayer that we always say as we begin our Bible studies. And I want to bring out one particular uh, phrase, and that's when we say, uh, implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. So we've talked before about how the Gospels, particularly, the Scripture in general, but the Gospels particularly, are going to encourage us to do two things simultaneously that are distinct, but they're connected. One is to understand who Christ is, what he's here to do, what his teaching is, and therefore how we ought to live based on what he is teaching and doing. And we think about carnal desires, you know, we don't use the word carnal much anymore, but we think of fleshly, we tend to think of perhaps sexual desires, or uh, maybe it's eating, those kind of more physical um, expressions of sinfulness. 
but really carnal desires are not as opposed to innocent um, worldly desires. It's carnal as, as in terms of what is fleshly, what is worldly, versus what is spiritual and what is eternal. Um, in the ancient world, there was not a this this concept of atheism would have been very foreign to them. Um, which religion, which God you follow, that would have been a great debate. Um, but it wouldn't be like sort of a are you going to live a material world or a spirit or a material life or a spiritual life? In our day and age, that is a concept that all of us struggle with to a much greater degree than, let's say, ancient generations would have. They would, they would not have thought about, is this world all there is? They would have understood instinctually that there's more to this world than the physical world that we see. So when we think about going in and studying the scriptures, as we're about to do in a moment, when we want to trample down all carnal desires to end up on a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things are pleasing to God. Um, we have to keep that foremost because that is a tension. We, we do have carnal desires that are sinful because they're sinful carnal desires. We also have desires that are carnal in the sense of I want to live according to the material life that I see and feel and taste and touch and all that. So we, we have a, a heavy lift to do as, as Christians in the modern era. It's not, I wouldn't say worse than other times. The temptations happen to be different. You and I aren't necessarily facing outright persecution or loss of life for our faith. And yet there is a, am I going to hold on to the material life I have, even the physical life in this, in this world versus living according to the teachings of Jesus, which say that all of this is passing, but you want to hold on to what's the eternal. So just keep that in mind as we go back into the scriptures now for um, we had a little bit of a break there. Any thoughts or questions on, on that? All right. Well, then let's get right back into Matthew. If memory serves, we are in chapter 12, verse 9. Am I correct? Yes. Great. And I wrote 15 that's why, but you're correct. Uh, no, you, you are correct. Okay. All right. So would somebody read for us verses 9 through 14 in Matthew 12? I can follow. Thank you. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. All right, thank you, Subdeacon. Um, if you think about this exchange, it's a it's a dialogue, it's a debate. You might even call it an argument. Um, so let's frame the discussion. What is the position of 
the um, who does it say they were? They might accuse him. It doesn't say that they are. I think we can assume it's it's Pharisees or, or religious leaders. Um, but what is the, the position of them? What is their position here? They're intent on making Jesus look like he's breaking the law and they want to destroy him. That's what it says in the last. It says Pharisees. Does it say Pharisees? Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, all right. So they want to destroy him. You said a couple things in there. They want to show that he is breaking the law by healing on the Sabbath. Correct. Now, here's what's really interesting. One of the things interesting. Has he healed anyone yet? So already the man of the withered hand, he walks in as a man of the withered hand. And they ask him. In other words, they knew probably what he was about to do. <laughs> oh, they is that they the the ones that are asking are the Pharisees? Mm-hmm. Well, it could be the Pharisees. We don't know for sure. It sort of seems that way, but either way, whoever they are, um, you're either part of the Pharisees or taking counsel to destroy them. But whoever they are, they have a position that is different than Jesus's. So they want to demonstrate that healing is going to be a breaking of the law. Okay, what else is their position? And why do they have that? I feel like they're rule followers, you know, people who always follow the rules and kind of have to stick with it. Okay, so they they have this position of that's the highest level is the rule. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the relative you know, truth of it versus other truth or other ideas. Good. I feel like they get as pure as possible by following the rules. So if any breakage of the rules means they're not pure. Okay. Anything else that's part of their argument? It's a short little section, but anything else that we're missing on what their their argument is? Yeah. And the Sabbath is the most important thing here. Uh, and doing anything on the Sabbath, uh, even if it's good, uh, is considered evil or bad. Right. Okay. And isn't it so if, it, no, uh, uh, in, um, nobody that was infirm of body could even be in the temple because uh, wasn't it the people that had ailments, didn't they have to stay outside or I don't know, I could be wrong, but. Possibly. Oh, this is a synagogue. I'm, I'm not sure. That's possible. But they seem to be sort of happy that it, it's happening because they think they're 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 going to trap Jesus. We we see at the at the end of verse mm-hmm. verse ten, they might accuse him. So they're looking for something to accuse him of, and they think they've got a great situation here. They, they, Jesus walks in. There's a man with a withered hand. Ah, great. And so they ask him straight, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? All right, anything else we're missing from their argument? All right. What's Jesus' argument? He's saying that, I mean, you, the example of the sheep is very important to people then. I mean, if that one fell in a pit, you wouldn't you go in and get him and 
is a man in less important than your sheep. Mm -hmm. So if I could paraphrase, his position is that they're already on his side. Because if one of their sheep fell in the pit on the Sabbath, they would get it out. That's the assumption, right? Which man of mm -hmm. you would not do this? In other words, you would do this. So it's that they already have this idea that they're already arguing against. It's their idea too. They just haven't thought it through yet. What else? Does he abolish the Sabbath? No. Well, he's Not the abolished. Lord. And, and paragraph, uh, section eight, at paragraph eight, it says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right. We just had that. Remember, that was just the section before. Great. So he's going to say there is a relative priority or, or importance or authority. The Sabbath is important, but he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's above. He's the ruler of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not above him. Anything else we can pull out of what Jesus's argument is going to be here? I feel like he's saying that the intent of the Sabbath is not what you think it is. It's it's much more and he's trying to explain to them that it's about doing good and to do things uh have a relationship with god on that day it's to help <laughs> everyone else and you know, there's more to it than what they think it is based upon just rules good so now, i desire mercy not sacrifice so he was really to kind of tie into what ricardo is saying it is the compassion and the mercy that mm -hmm. he wanted to bring them to Okay, so um, lost my train of thought. It'll come back. Oh, yeah. So, Ricardo, you said the intent. Mm -hmm. If you think about intent as you're using that word here, what other words could you substitute and have the same meaning? God's desire. I think you're right. Okay, and desire, outer desire, inner desire. Uh, what do you mean the inner? It's it's about the okay. intent behind it. It's like fasting and everything else that you do in the church. It's like what's the intent inside your heart? Okay, so it's the intent. It's what you. It's the purpose of it. It's the inner, and you brought in that very important word for Matthew, the heart. Jesus is getting to, as we would say in the modern day, the heart of the matter. This is not superficial. If you do only the superficial, you're missing out, right? Go back to the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, when you fast, don't do this just outwardly. You got to do it inwardly when you pray, when you do all, when you give alms. So Jesus is always going to say intent is important, but what makes it important is what it's what's the inner meaning of it. It's what the the heart of it is versus just the outward expression of it. So that's, I wanted to sort of bring out that sort of back and forth of two different perspectives, because that's going to be continually, we've seen it already over and over again. We're going to keep seeing it until, as verse 14 says, the only way the Pharisees will see a way out of this, they're going to keep losing the argument. And, you know, when somebody keeps losing an argument, the only thing you can do if you still want to win is get rid of your opponent. Right. If you can't win in the argument of ideas, 
or the battlefield of, of the thought or the, 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 the mm -hmm. purpose and knowledge and the truth of it, you just get rid of them. You just destroy them. I have a question. Yeah. And when we read this, I mean, it's, it's very brief. Did, did Jesus have in-depth conversations with the Pharisees? I mean, is there more to these conversations than, than what we see or don't we know that? We don't know. I mean, did it, I mean, did he, he always says, and then he left. I mean, mm -hmm. or did they keep going back and forth? And forth? Well, in the story, that's going to happen enough. We don't know what happened beyond what's written in the book. But in the book, it's a constant theme. It keeps coming back. Like when we, if I were to say to you, if we had said, and he went on from there and entered the synagogue and behold, there's a man with a withered hand. If I said, all right, don't read anything after that. What day of the week do you think it is? We all would have realized it's the Sabbath. Why? Because the, that common theme is it's Jesus, not against the Pharisees, but against the Pharisees wrong interpretation of the law, including the purpose of the Sabbath. So is there more to the discussion? We don't know. What we know is, yes, this discussion keeps happening over and over again. And remember, this is not, we didn't stumble up across a text that the author didn't know someone might read. Matthew wrote this for people to read it and to get what he had in mind. So there's nothing accidental. It's not like Matthew's goal is not to write an engaging story. If you're a novel writer, you want to write an engaging story. You might have some um, value things you want to put in there. Uh, you might have some uh, moral teaching you might want to put in there. But your main goal as a novel writer is to tell a good story and have people buy your book, right? Um, the Gospels, and specifically in Matthew, Matthew has a goal besides selling books and keeping you entertained. Matthew wants to change our perspective on who Jesus is and therefore how we make our choices. So this is a very important thing for Matthew, apparently, that we want to see this over and over again interaction with Jesus, with the Pharisees or anyone who's trying to, as it says in my translation, uh, trying to accuse him. Before, what is he, what is before your verse Christ, before Christ um, started his ministry, um, what was done on the Sabbath? Anything? You would worship, but that's all you would do. You would, you would worship and you'd rest. Now, as I remind people all the time, if it's a day off, that means the bodies are around and you'd be fed. So typically, historically, the women, they might have done stuff ahead of time to repair, but it wasn't like they weren't going to bring the food out. They didn't not eat on the Sabbath. So they already had a sense of, you know, just like Jesus brings out the example with the sheep. They, he's trying to show them over and over again, like, you understand this, but you're acting like you're not. You're not even stopping to think about what I'm teaching you that actually you agree with by pulling the sheep out, right? We all would say that, you know, historically, for those of us old enough to remember, Sundays were just a beautiful restful time. You went to church, you came home, you had a big family supper together, typically or traditionally, and it was a day of rest. Unless you were the mom, <laughs> then it was not a day of rest, right? But you still enjoyed 
that time off from the rest of the week and it was time with your family. It wasn't your gainful labor going out to the fields. That it was a day off of that kind of work. But again, because the Jews, think about this, before even Jesus comes, the Pharisees didn't develop their ideas about the law when Jesus arrived. Whatever the ideas they have about the law, he's confronting, it's already there. And so they already got it wrong. Now they're finding out that somebody thinks they, they got it wrong. No one ever told them before, you, you're getting this wrong. But now they're being told, well, actually, I take it back. The prophets would have been constantly reminding whenever the prophets were around, reminding that people are getting what God has been telling them wrong. And that's just why one of Jesus's sort of the roles that we see in what he does is he's a prophet. And Matthew's going to show us he's, he's prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three sort of archetypal roles from the Old Testament. Jesus is going to fulfill all of them. Um, notice also the last verb. Mine says the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how to destroy him. Did yours have the same? Destroy? Destroy. Okay. New King James. Why, why destroy? Why not just kill him or get rid of him or move him away? I think it was because they not only wanted to destroy him as an individual, they wanted to totally do away with his teaching, his thinking. Uh, they wanted to remove him and his influence from every vestige of their religious structure. That's right. So when you think about them killing him, it's bad that they're going to end up killing him. But it wasn't just taking his life. It was we want to destroy him. And like somebody could say, everything about him. We don't want, we, we just want it destroyed. Think of it, that's a very powerful word. It's you, when you destroy something, there's nothing left. <laughs> when they say oh, the town was destroyed, you don't see the town anymore. It was destroyed. That's so that they didn't want a martyr either. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because if they just killed them, then it would just make his people rise up even more. So by yeah. destroying the, the brand, you know, like yes. marketing terms, you know, they can discredit everything. Yeah, very well said. But there's more to it because I think the Roman law would have uh, prohibited them to kill um, without uh, without legal justification. Is that right? Right. But that's going to be just a hindrance. That's going to be a, a roadblock they'll have to figure out, but they're not concerned. Their concern is let's destroy him. That's more logistics, like, oh, we got to get pilot on board. OK, well, when the time comes, we'll do it. And they did. They got they got pilot on board to agree. And it, it took you remember that we'll, we'll get to her. It, it wasn't easy. It was not easy for them to convince pilot. That's why, you know, the church, we have a sort of ambivalent feeling about pilot. On the one hand, he was the one that technically had to allow it. And we're not going to sugarcoat that at all. However, because how the scriptures are, and you've listed our hymnography in Holy Week, we don't rail a whole lot against Pilate. But we sure do against these Pharisees and other Jewish leaders, because they were, as we see here, intent on accusing him so they could destroy him. So they bear the brunt.
Let me read you a couple of quotes. Um, this is from the, the, about the Pharisees accusing Jesus from St. John Chrysostom. Is it allowed to heal on the Sabbath? He knew their love of wealth. He knew that they were all the more taken up with love of things than persons. And indeed, the other evangelist, who I think he's probably referring to Mark, maybe Luke, said that Jesus also scrutinized them as he asked this question, that by his very glance he might win them over, but they did not become softened. While in other cases he healed manually by the laying on of his hands, in this case he only speaks and gazes. But nothing would make them more gentle. Rather, even while the man was being healed, their condition was becoming worse. Jesus' desire was to heal first their bitterness before he healed the withered hand. But even in his various attempts to offer them healing, both by what he said and did, their malady proved all the more intractable. Hmm. I mean, if you think about it, by the end of the, the passage, they're going to witness a miracle. We might all say in our sensibility, well, if they saw the miracle, why wouldn't they believe? Right? It just seems logical. Right? Does it seem logical they would see a miracle and get more angry with Jesus? That doesn't seem logical. Right? What do you think? I, I think it also kind of refers to what one of the prophets said seeing they don't uh, perceive, uh, hearing they don't uh, understand. I think it just, they, they see it, but willingly uh, refuse to perceive the truth of it. And what's the result when they refuse to see the truth of it? They're, they're given over to their hard-heartedness. Yeah, it's not neutral. You're either going to be turned closer towards God and see his goodness for what it is and want to draw near to it, or seeing the same goodness, you're going to be repelled by it, and it's going to make you more angry and bitter, resentful and, hate and hateful. Now, before we let ourselves off the hook, because again, Matthew is not being written to accuse those people who go, oh, those silly Pharisees, right? Who's Matthew writing to that you and I should be most concerned about? ourselves there you go so is it really so hard for us to understand that somebody could see the goodness of god and not react positively can you think in your own life and in your own experience times at which you saw god at work and it made you less loving and more angry resentful. Maybe you didn't realize you're resentful against God, but you certainly didn't respond in a positive and loving and appreciative manner. Is anybody willing to share a memory or a story? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, not me. I can, when my father died at the age of 60 from prostate cancer, as I had been a Christian for many years, I thought that going through the grief and the process of losing my father, uh, uh, would I would draw near to God for comfort. What I actually found was I began to push away 
-hmm. from God because I said, why would God allow my father, who is a light in a dark world, to die and allow professional wrestlers to walk the earth? Mm. Why, why did God permit this? How can any good come of this? There was nothing in the equation that I could see where my father's death, was I to learn something? The equation didn't balance. Too much pain to learn anything mm. of equal value. And it took me a good six months or more, wouldn't you say, Carolyn, before I began to really come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign and I needed to draw near to him and allow him to soften my heart. That was one instance that I can remember. Well, thank you for sharing. It's, it's a great example. And you, the way you described it, you're getting farther from understanding the goodness of God was reversed only when you recognized his sovereignty. You put him back on top. Because when you saw the situation, if I could paraphrase, tell me if I'm wrong, the situation made you wonder what kind of good God is this. Therefore, the situation became primary in terms of how you were going to see God. That was on top. God was down below, and how could he do what he was doing? Then you reverse that. You put him back on top. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's a perfect example for, I think we all do this. If we admit it or not is the question, but I think we all do this probably more often than we think because miracles happen every day. We're seeing God's goodness every day. And yet not every day is a day that we get more in love with God, more committed to God, more trusting of God. We're all still struggling with that. And so if we're struggling with it, we want to see in this wonderful gift that Matthew's giving us in this section, that this is how it works. And if you don't do it differently, you're going to do the same thing. It's not really that you're, like the situation that you just mentioned. And, and I had the same experiences. And it's not that I'm thinking, oh, you're a mean God. Why do you let my dad die or my mom die? I'm just, it just... It's a lack of understanding. It's not that you're drawing away from him. It's just a it's it's a human emotion. You just wonder why. When your heart is breaking because you lost somebody you love. Mm -hmm. Is it so bad to wonder why? I, I think we're all gonna be drawn to that thought. The question is, how do we answer it? Yeah, that's and if what we answer it by saying I don't know if God really knew what he's doing. Again, we wouldn't think that. No, never out, would think that. Well, we wouldn't admit to thinking it, but all of us do because, you know, where is it? Is it Job? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job had the same opportunity to say, boy, I had a good life and everything was taken from me. What's wrong with you, God? And but he I ends up with not even a question. Yes, the Lord give us, yet the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There, there's, even if we can't answer the question, why? What I hear Subdeacon saying is, I don't know why, but I know God is, is in charge and he's good. Therefore, I trust him in how this played out. He must know why this can be and God is still good. That's, that's where I think all of us are challenged. Where we don't want to be is saying, well, I would never do that. And we all think, say that. We all, I would never think like these, these stupid Pharisees. 
And yet, I think we all are tempted to that. We probably give into it more often than we think, where no matter what's happening, we should be able to be motivated to see God's goodness, even if it's difficult. Because for the Pharisees, this was difficulty. And this, and that's why it's so important for me when we're reading this together for the discussion it's, as much as just reading it. Sure. It helps me. Yeah. But if any one of us were to read this with the full intent of saying, God, what are you going to teach me today? In Matthew 12, 9 to 14, I think it's there. Now, we need each other. It's helpful to have each other. We need each other. But it's all there. I think um, with me, uh, you know, there are times when I struggle with envy, you know, that God has blessed somebody else. Why hasn't he blessed me? And passages like this remind me to rejoice when God blesses somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. What's envy based on? The presupposition is. Somebody else got what they need, but I didn't, <laughs> right? If you had what they had, are you envious of it? Probably not. You need, you need to not have something that somebody else has. That's sort of prerequisite. If you can be envious, you can't have it. I can't say, I got a million dollars. Oh, that guy got a million. I'm envious. Now, you might be upset. You might be angry because you don't like the guy. You can't be envious because you have it, right? So, again, it, there's that, that nagging temptation we're all going to have over and over again of, do I really not have it? If I don't have it, is that actually God's goodness being shown to me? Because if we, if we see God for who he is, whatever we don't have, we would thank him. Thank you for not giving that to me. <laughs> Right. And in our in our better moments, we do that. Our better moments, we say, thank God I don't have that because that would be a temptation here. That would be difficult for me. Thank God. In our better moments, that's what we have. A million dollars is the temptation. For some people. You know who the most demographically identifiable, unhappy people are in the world? Lottery winners. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the shock how to handle what has happened because they think why were they playing the lottery because money's going to solve my problems no, so they probably have very little money a lot of them are very little but they'll put it in the lottery and then when they get the money they realize that's not the solution actually brought more problems now my friend's calling me why is he calling me is he calling me because i won the lottery i don't know anymore so very interesting but the opposite of, of the envious is the anger that we feel when someone who gets sick or dies um, wasn't ready for that. You know, a, a murder of a child or a shooting on the street or shooting at the grocery store or the school or kidnapping of a the 42-year-old mother of two and when she was out running and, and killed. Those are the things that say, you wonder why did God allow that to happen to what we perceive to be a very innocent, loving, 
unsinful person. Sure. Be harmed by a sinner. Sure. So while we can't necessarily answer the question why, we still have to make a decision of, even though we can't answer why, does that question come under the umbrella of, I'm not sure if God is always good, therefore I'm not sure, if, was he asleep at the switch this one time, or, or what's wrong with God that he didn't see how bad this was, or is it under the umbrella of, that's a terrible thing, it's a tragedy, but my God is so good that he's going to make good things come out even out of that. Again, it's, 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 you can't answer all the questions. You can choose the perspective within which you're going to ask and answer those questions or try to answer them. But Read one can, more quote. Oh, go ahead. But you can see and understand a little bit where people question God. Um, we say he's a loving God and we allow things to happen that are bad, i.e. 9-11 or anything like that, tragically. Um, that's where they question, is, is there a loving God? I mean, I don't, they say, they'll say, I don't, I don't see it. Yeah, people get healed and but that's from the doctor, that's from prayer or whatever, but you don't see God doing the good things as much as you see him doing, assisting or allowing, I should say, the bad things that happen. And it seems to be more yeah. now than it did when I was growing up. Yeah, is that actually because things have gotten worse? Or is it because, as you just said, I think very accurately, we're not seeing the good things as much. I, I talk about this a lot in terms of media, because media is a new kind of reality we live in that the world didn't deal with. The world, the world had other difficulties and, and, and temptations, but this whole idea of a media-saturated world that we live in, is it really true that the world is going downhill and worse things are happening? That's how it feels. I get it. We know more, right? In my phone that sits right here, literally next to my heart, the worst things that happen in the world are going to get to me quickest from anywhere in the globe. I'm going to find out about it instantly. And we all know this because we've been, I think, sort of formed and tempted into the negative is more engaging. That's what most of the news. People say, well, why don't they put more good news stories in the news? What's the answer? Why don't they? It doesn't sell. People get envious. Yeah. People are less interested. They want yeah. to see the plane crash. Nobody wants to say, hey, let's go to the airport and watch the plane land safely. I like to do that, but <laughs> <laughs> right? But mostly like, it wouldn't make the news. Can you imagine, you know, top story, wood TV tonight. All flights landed today safely at at Gerald Ford Airport. Let's go interview the airport manager. Yeah, another day, they all landed, nobody crashed, right? Ratings would crash. Mm -hmm. We just, but, so again, my, our perception that things have gotten worse, and now and it's a valid question, like these things happen. They're really bad things. We don't want to denigrate them and say, well, it's not so bad, it doesn't happen all that often. They're bad. But our perspective is how bad is life 
is very skewed. If, if I challenge you all to name the ways God blessed you in your life from the time you woke up until 1049, <laughs> how many do you think you could come up with? Quite a few. How many digits in that number? Any guesses? Just a couple. Just a couple? I'd say like 25, 30. Anybody else have a guess? Probably depends upon what time you woke up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be I'll I'll be generous and say you got you slept until eight. So in three hours, how how many blessings? I would say there are probably countless blessings. Um, how many could you come up? With? How many did we actually thank God for? You know, um, that yeah. would probably be a lot less. You know, than countless. But if you tried and you had the time, how many could you come up with? Ricardo says twenty-five. I think every second is a blessing because you're alive. Yeah, I bet if I gave Ricardo enough time and he had nothing else to do, I bet he could come up with seventy-five hundred blessings. In the last three hours. Yes. Is that ridiculous to think about? No. 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 Right? If you think of every moment, I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's at least nine of us here hearing each other reflect on God's scripture. There's nine. Right? We've all got enough air to breathe. I'm guessing if any of us didn't eat because we didn't choose to or we had whatever we could eat so i mean there's just there's yeah i think you're right carolyn it's countless but we could count we get a very high number but how do you tell that to the, how do you tell that to the like the people of ukraine that that see these bombings and shellings and killings and rapes and everything else coming at them all the time they're an orthodox christian nation being invaded by another orthodox christian nation and struggling to understand that how how do we in our mind say that's not that's that's the um the evil one and not god well i i think you know out of compassion we're not going to come in and say hey life's great <laughs> but my guess is, Alan, if, if you were given the opportunity and somehow you had a, a God detector, my guess is we could go to Ukraine today and find someone who would tell us such a story of peace and gratitude that we would, we would have our minds blown. All right, I'll just share some of my experience. Um, we were living in Mexico for three years. From my perspective, nobody that I knew had any right from our American sensibility to be happy. Most of the people I knew lived in what you and I would call abject poverty. The people that I knew that I spent the time with, the staff of the orphanage, some of their homes had concrete floors, most did not. This is a staff. These were not just wandering nomads, right? Um, 
most of them did not have a flushing toilet in their house. But when I tell you these were happy people, they were happy people. So I get it. It's it's hard, but Alan, I think what you're you're getting at is that it's it seems like too great a climb that when we see so much bad in the world to think how can we still have joy and peace and hope? Well, let's fast forward to the end of the story to chapter 27. Jesus is going to continually be hounded by these Pharisees. They're going to keep trying to trick him. They're finally going to accuse him falsely. Then they're going to beat him in every way that we know they're going to beat him in his passion. And they're going to nail him to the cross. What's his reaction going to be? Forgive him. So he's going to show us that not only is it possible, it is the way. It is what normal life looks like. And then you can say, well, yeah, he's the son of God. We're going to have every saint from then until now show us the same thing. Like it's not material ease. Remember where I started that conversation at the beginning? This idea of trampling down carnal desires to end upon a spiritual manner of living. You're right. If I'm focused on carnal desires and I'm in Ukraine right now, this world is a living hell. But if my mind is on spiritual matters, again, if you could find that God detector, you would find those people in the middle of what others would call living hell, and they're not living in a living hell. So it's, it is a choice of perspective. And actually, I want to get to this point. I'll get to that before we close off. Let me read a quote to you from St. John Chrysostom. He says, by this, he makes clear that deluded souls are not even persuaded by miracles. And he shows how his disciples had also been wrongly blamed by them without cause. Note how vehement his detractors have suddenly grown. And this happens, especially when they see others benefiting from his ministry. When they see someone delivered either from disease or iniquity, then that immediately cues them to further find fault. They become like wild beasts. According to this pattern, they repeat, repeatedly demean him as when he was about to save the prostitute and again when he was eating with publicans and now again when they saw the withered hand restored. So whether you're seeing more of the carnally worldly negative things or you see the carnally worldly things overcome by God's goodness, you're going to have a choice what to do about that. And the goodness doesn't lead you automatically to go, oh, maybe God is good, right? 9-11 didn't happen. Ukraine didn't happen. Oh, God is good. Because the same people who are seeing God's goodness here, they become beasts. And there's this idea in, in orthodoxy that, you know, our, our sort of cartoonish ideas of heaven and hell are, you know, heaven is up there in the clouds, and the angels are playing their harps, and the devil's down there with his pitchfork and the fires and the steam. And um, there, I mean, there's biblical ideas of being two different, what we might call a place. Um, but a, a very orthodox idea is that what determines how you experience the next life is not so much on what's the temperature of the air. It's did you encounter God and find him compelling, good, loving, attractive, wanting to go farther, closer to him, 
Or were you repelled by what he did? And therefore you suffer the more, the more goodness of God you see, the more you suffer. And there's this idea uh, several fathers talk about where heaven and hell are not different places. <coughs> Excuse me. They're different experiences of the same good God. That as the Pharisees encounter the good God, they get wild with their envy and their anger and their hatred. Whereas others are going to be converted to the goodness of God by the fact that they're seeing it right in front of them. So it's, it's a good reminder for us that it, it's, it's not just what's going on in our life. How good is it? How bad is it? How easy it is? How hard is it? It really is. What's the perspective that we bring to it? Because it's the goodness is not going to do it. If the goodness was going to do it for everybody. Then these Pharisees, oh, we were wrong about you, Jesus. We were so wrong about the Sabbath. They got more angry after he healed the man with the withered hand. Can I, can I break in here and ask a question? I know we're running short yeah. of time. But um, I guess I see, I, you know, I don't want to take away anything from what you said because it's all true. But, you know, I think part of the human experience is that there is, you know, there's a time to rejoice and there's a time to lament, yep. um, you know, and, and what the Pharisees did here is that they got that completely wrong. They, they did not rejoice when, when God performed a miraculous hearing, uh, healing. Um, but can you comment on what you see as the appropriate time to lament? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why I said, you know, we have to think about we're not going to walk into Ukraine today and say, isn't God great? Everything's wonderful. In compassion, we identify people suffering. And where you see this really clearly is in our funeral service. A lot of funeral services in the so-called Christian world are all about happiness and joy and peace and light heaven. There's obviously a place for that. But at a funeral service, the church laments with those mourning. We sing, I weep and I wail when I think upon death. That's one of the main hymns of the funeral service. So absolutely, there's a place for lament. But I think where we would draw the line is we're not going to lament with people to the point where we would agree if they want to go further. Is it sad what you're going to? Absolutely. And we're going to be here with you. And by the way, so is our God. It is not accidental. It's central to the Christian message that Jesus is crucified. Is he the one that's going to stop planes from hitting buildings in 9-11? No, but he is the one that even though he's not going to control us because to stop the plane is also to stop the car out of control, to stop the disease, to stop you tripping as you walk across the floor. As I say, God's choice was, is he, is he going to duct tape us to our padded chairs and our padded cells where we're fed intravenously because we can't choke? Is that the life he's going to consign us to? Or is he going to give us our freedom, knowing we're going to mess up with it, knowing we're going to make our lives and other lives miserable, but he himself enter into and provide the solution to the misery? So to answer your question, we start with lament. Um, we go in and we just uh, share in people's sadness and suffering and just be with them through that. And then when they're ready, and as they're ready, if they need help seeing that bigger perspective, 
we try to gently bring them to see a different perspective. Speaking of which, it's 11 o'clock and it's time for some of us to gather together and lament together and encourage each other. So sorry we were late today. Our team is going to get much better at getting our Bible study ready for everybody ahead of time. And God willing, we'll start on time. Thank you, Father. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, Father. Father. Bye, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you, Father. Bye now. Bye-bye.